All right, this morning I have the privilege of, of having my second sermon in a row. I know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's also incredibly frustrating because it's been a while. <laughs> so uh, I had to think, well, what can I do for two sermons in a row that will connect and still be interesting? Especially because Marlon gave me guidance on the first one and this one he set me free. Well, this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We're going to read that together, we'll pray together, and then we'll dig in together. And so this is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, and I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's go to the Lord together. God, we thank you for today. And we thank you for the distinct privilege it is to gather together as your people and come to your word together. Lord, would your spirit be at work in each and every one of us to read your word this morning, to hear from it. Lord, would you speak to us individually on the levels that we need, but also would you speak to us as a body. Lord, lead us to you. Lead us into greater unity. And may you be glorified in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we will be talking about the idea of unity. Say it with me. Unity. Oh, see, that was pretty good. Now, Marlon would have you do it again, but I'm not Marlon. Don't, don't, don't tell him I said that. No, last week, we looked, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 3, and we saw that the church in Corinth had problems. And we thought, well, okay, let's enough with the church in Corinth. Let's go to another church. Well, this morning we're looking at the church in Ephesus. And let me tell you something. The church in Ephesus had problems. Now, in Corinth, it was pretty clear. They lost sight of the gospel and they didn't understand God's process for making disciples. Their focus was on themselves. Their focus was on the men that they claimed to follow when it should have been Christ that they were following. And as we talked about last week, Christ makes all the difference. And as a result, their human failings caused division in the church rather than becoming the unified body that God desired them to be. This week, we'll be focusing, like I said, on the church in Ephesus to see what happens when God causes growth in his church and the unity in maturity that should result. Now, first things first, there was division in the church in Ephesus. Now, Corinth and Ephesus were very similar in certain respects. They were large cities. They were centers of commerce, of religion, of 
activity. Socially, these were happening places in the ancient world. Now, there were a few differences between Corinth and Ephesians, different temples, different groups that operated there in different regions. Uh, both were Greek. Ephesus is uh, in what we might consider uh, Asia Minor, at least as in Paul's time. It was gateway to a certain part of the world, and yet in Rome, it was another city. In fact, it was a large city. Uh, one scholar mentioned that Rome, of course, is the center of the Roman Empire. Ephesus is second to Rome in influence and size. Now, the whole of the Roman Empire is pretty big. Ephesus, in the ancient world, you have to understand that great cities in the ancient world were smaller than cities today. You want an idea of the population of Ephesus? It's somewhere between uh, the population of the Iron Range, which, by the way, I'm new here. Uh, in, in November, it'll be a year. And I realized that everybody seems to have a different definition of what cities are in the Iron Range and which ones are not. So, depending on which cities you include, uh, we're talking anywhere from 40 to 60,000 people on the Iron Range. So, Ephesus, at its smallest, was about that size. If you go by other estimates, Ephesus in the time of Paul would have been equal to about the population of the entirety of St. Louis County. Which, yes, I looked it up, is just shy of 200,000 people. Not that you know that, considering Duluth thinks they're all of St. Louis County. Right? I, th I thought you'd like that one. No, it was all of somewhere between 50,000 and 225,000, depending on different estimates, in one city. And in the ancient world, this was enormous. Rome was expected to have all of 750,000 to a million people. And so while Ephesus was only maybe a fifth of the size at its largest, when you think about that, outside of Rome, it, maybe we haven't stopped to think about it. There, there is a very specific reason why Paul planted churches in specific cities. They were ancient centers of trade, of commerce, of religion, where people gathered together, and if they heard the gospel, they'd take it throughout the ancient world. Ephesus was important that way. And if there were problems in Corinth, there's going to be problems in Ephesus, if only because, well, as, as we might paraphrase it, more sinners, more problems. And the reality is any church is made up of sinful people. That's who we are. And so as long as there has been people in a church, there has been sin in a church. And as long as there are sinners in a church, there is conflict in a church. And so it makes perfect sense. It is perfectly natural that there was division in Ephesus. Now, Paul starts this section this morning uh, in mentioning that, yes, he is a prisoner in Rome. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, which you might recall was not too kind to him, the city anyway. He went there, he proclaimed the gospel to the Jews. The Jews, if you put it short, ran him out. He said, fine, then I'll preach to the Gentiles. And he went and he proclaimed the gospel and a church was planted in Ephesus. A number of people were sent. Timothy uh, was one of those elders who was sent to serve in Ephesus. And Ephesus had very specific problems, but he knew the church well. And he said, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. This is what he said, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is, to honor Christ by living according to the call of Christ. He said, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That is, in keeping with the character of Christ. He said, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, maintaining the unity of the Holy Spirit, which we have if we are in Christ. And yet there's an interesting phrase there. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First off, he's saying there is unity in the Spirit. You have it, and you need to maintain it. Now, some of us would say, wouldn't it be nice if in our church we have unity? And Paul would say, you have it. Live like it. We're going to get into that. 
Now, what does he mean maintaining the unity? Where is this unity supposed to come from? How did we get it? And how on earth are we supposed to maintain it? And so Paul gives us one answer in three parts. Now, this is in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So those three parts. There is one spirit uniting one body. There is one hope belonging to one call. And there is one faith and baptism into the same Lord. So we're going to look at that phrase by phrase, starting with one spirit uniting one body. Simply put, there cannot be division in the body of Christ because there is not division in the spirit. The body of Christ, that is, the church of Christ, is composed. I'm not going to lie, I lost my place. This, this happens. Last week I got home and I realized I missed an entire section because they look the same. Yeah. It happens, and you missed out, because it was a good section. <laughs> yeah, not that you'd ever know. i got to stop making jokes and figure out where I was. The, yeah, well, yeah. The body of Christ is composed of those who are in Christ and in whom the Spirit dwells. As Paul asked the church in Corinth, as we looked at last week, is Christ divided? And the answer was no, of course not. Division has no place in the body. It is evidence of the image of the church's immaturity in the faith. Now, Paul said this very specifically. There is one body and one spirit, not multiple bodies and multiple spirits, because there is one spirit. There is one body, the spirit of Christ working among the body of Christ. That makes sense. Now, he also said it is one hope belonging to one call. This is, this is from verse 4. Just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call. Just as we are unified as one body according to the one spirit at work in us. So we are unified to the same hope and the same call. It is Jesus Christ who alone can save us. Who alone is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed. Not Elevating men to Christ's position like the church in Corinth and not elevating differences among them above the gospel like the church in Ephesus. Whether Jew or Greek, they share the same hope in Jesus and their call is to honor him together. This is from earlier in Ephesians from chapter two, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there was also that third phrase, one faith and baptism. Specifically in verses five and six, it is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, there is one number that is mentioned multiple times, and it is one. Now, Paul is trying to emphasize oneness. Because God is one. Because His Spirit is not divided. It makes sense that the church would be one. And specifically, the things that make it one, if we're going to talk about unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. They do not serve different lords, but are servants unto the same Master. They are not people of different faiths. 
but those whose hope is in the same salvation. Their baptism was a declaration of faith and obedience to the same Savior, Jesus Christ. As God is not divided, so his people are called to not be divided, but to be unified. Where there is division among his people, it is the result of the flesh, not the spirit. And so back to those questions. Where is this unity supposed to come from? How did we get it? And how are we supposed to maintain it? Well, the answers are easy. Perfect unity has always been present in the Godhead. There is not division between the Father and Son. There is not division between the Son and the Spirit. There is not division between the Spirit and the Father. They are perfectly unified. It always has been. It always will be. We have been unified with Christ in His death and resurrection. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I stepped into the junior high Sunday school class where the pastor at the time was teaching them the perichoruses. And if you don't know what it is, it's because you don't need to. But really what it is, is an explanation of how the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in an eternal uh, union of love and honor. And so each goes and it's this mutual relationship and then through Christ the door is opened to us and we now have a relationship with the trinity of love and honor that or love and glory rather that God has loved us and glorifies us and that we're now with Christ and as a result we respond in love and glory if it sounds like a lot it was now imagine being in junior high and trying to process that if you are in junior high I'm sorry even apart from this Sunday, that's rough. Uh. No, it's this relationship that's happening. There has always been unity among the Godhead. There is now unity that we have with God because of Christ's death and resurrection. And we have the help of the Spirit present in every believer. Now, what does that help look like? If that first piece is the call to unity, then the second piece is what makes it possible, and that is God's grace. Paul says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now that itself is pretty simple, but Paul then decides to back that up with Scripture, which is where it gets a little bit complicated. So he quotes from Psalm 68. He said, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, that's pretty good. It's a quote, but it doesn't sound like a good quote. Because when Paul says it, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so Paul takes this passage and he applies it to Christ. And we might say, well, hold on, Paul. You just went and did a, a bad thing. You, you took a passage, you misinterpreted it, you applied it to Christ, even though there's no other passages which might back that up. Paul is taking liberties with the text. Well, okay, Paul gets a pass because uh, he did have a, you know, that special meeting with Jesus uh, where Jesus explained a whole lot of things that he never explained to anyone else. And then he spent time with the apostles who were there with Jesus and listened to his teaching. So Paul might know a thing or two that we don't. But what Paul's doing is not misquoting, he's not misinterpreting, he's doing the work for us to help us understand the passage in light of Christ. Because in Paul's view, and I think he's right here, he views Christ as the greater fulfillment of God's promises to his people. So here's what this looks like. Just as God established for himself a people... Just as he raised them up out of Egypt as captives set free and given gifts by God's hand from those who had resisted God. If we recall, when the, the Israelites went out of Egypt, they were sent with gifts. And these gifts were from people who had oppressed them, who had kept them as slaves. And in sending them on their way, they blessed them by giving them things. Almost as a way of saying, thanks for leaving, never come back. You'd say, why would they do that to slaves? Well, there was something about a few plagues and people dying, and it got pretty awful for a while. So when the Israelites left, the Egyptians, at least most of them, Pharaoh not included, were glad to see them go. But Jesus is the greater fulfillment of God's 
promises. Paul says this. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And so Paul is pointing to Christ and saying, see, and saying he ascended. Now, in the psalm, it's talking about a specific mountain and that mountain's response to Zion and God's action and, and God gathering his chariots together. And now things are different, that gifts were given. And if you break it down, it's simple. As God established his people, he cared for his people, he raised them up and set them free, that he blessed them with gifts. And he explains it in this way, that Jesus came as a gift to God's people from among God's people, that Jesus came to rescue them from even greater oppression, that of sin and death, As it was God providing for his people before, it is God providing now. Only we are the captives being set free. And the gifts God gives are again by his hand from those who had previously resisted God. This time, not the Egyptians, but instead the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. Paul described it this way. Uh, sorry, Peter described it this way from Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, Paul explains the same thing as we see in Ephesians 4. That there are... Oh, I moved to my next page too quickly. Uh, you guys have to forgive me. I am still on chemo. It's, I'm on new medication this week, so everything's unexpected for me too. And so if I make a few mistakes, I'm going to blame it not on the fact that it's me, uh, but on something I can't control. So Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, there's something interesting about the saints being equipped because the basic idea behind it is that we are not left alone to figure out everything on our own. Last week, we looked at Matthew 28, where Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sent out his disciples with a plan. He didn't say, go out there, make converts, and then they'll figure it out from there. No, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And so these men of unique giftings and unique purpose went out to make disciples of all nations. They went out to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they went out to teach these new disciples to observe all the commands of Christ. And so what Paul's describing in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 4 is that these men, again, of unique giftings and purpose are sent to make disciples. And they go out doing different things. Some preaching, some baptizing, some teaching. That's from 1 Corinthians 3 from last week. Others shepherding these established churches. Not so these servants these apostles would benefit, but rather so the saints would be equipped for the work of ministry. As Paul writes to the saints, he also helps them to understand their role in the body. Now, it's one of those things that when we preach on this passage, it's often to remind the saints, that is, the people in the pews, that you're the ones doing the work of ministry. And the reason that as pastors we like to mention this is because at least in our part of the world, we have this residual effect. And it's that many of us grew up in Catholic churches, Lutheran churches. If you had some experience of the church, it's likely that that, that was a piece of it. And that's because that's part of the, the heritage, the spiritual heritage of this area. 
And so it's not unusual for people to have this expectation of who is it that does the work of ministry. And we'd say it's the pastors. It's the priests. They're the ones who minister to people, who care for the flock, who meet needs, who visit people. And as pastors, this is one of those verses we love to go back to and to read to other people because it's almost like, see, it's not just us saying this. It's Paul that the saints are to be equipped for the work of ministry. And even so, that's not the emphasis of the passage this morning. No, it's that the saints are trying to understand what their role is in all of this. In the church in Corinth, they were misunderstanding the role of those who were coming to serve. And they said, well, I follow Paul, or I follow, I follow Cephas, or I follow Apollos. They were taking the message bearer and putting them on the same level as Christ. They were taking one position and, and putting that above the other apostles. And Paul is saying, no, 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 these men are not sent to be glorified, but to lead you to glorify Christ. Specifically, they have a role in the church. They are sent, and I don't think any pastor thinks that they are God's gift to the church. And yet Paul describes pastors, and not just pastors, but evangelists, the apostles, the shepherds, the teachers, the prophets, all of these as parts of God's grace. In fact, when Paul describes himself, he says, God's grace was given to me for you. And so Paul is not claiming anything to glorify himself. He said, God gave me this special peace, this job that I have in the kingdom in order to bring up God's people in knowledge of who he is. For Paul, that's to proclaim the gospel. For Cephas, uh, it was to preach and to baptize. For Apollos, he was a teacher. And so he led people in what does it now mean to follow Christ? And so here's the interesting piece. It's clear that the apostles are sent to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But the next phrase is less clear. Is it the apostles or the saints who are to build up the body of Christ? And maybe you thought, Lawrence, I don't know where we are. Please remind me. And I will. This is verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And we could go back and forth. In fact, if you were to look up uh, commentaries on this passage, some will say, well, this is the, the, the job that the saints are given. That it's their job to be equipped for the work of ministry so that they might build up the church. And other commentaries will say, no, 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 this is the job of the apostles, the evangelists, the teachers to build up the body of Christ. And I'll say a really unsatisfactory answer. I think both are okay. That there isn't a right answer or a wrong answer. Because in the end, it's both. The apostles equip the saints and build up the body. And the body, as we'll see in a bit, builds itself up in love. So both are doing the building. And so it doesn't really matter. Disciples make disciples. The body builds up the body. And so that brings us to the purpose of God's gift. Now, Paul describes that these men were sent for the express purpose of equipping the church. And also there to build up the body of Christ. And there's a goal in mind. Until we all attain unity in faith, unity in knowledge, and unity in maturity. And we're going to take each of those phrases in turn. Now, unity in faith, Paul has already described. We all hold to the same faith in the same Savior and are members of the same body. But like the church in Corinth, in many of us, that faith remains immature and easily falters or is led astray. But through the indwelling of the Spirit and the service of God's chosen servants, the body is to be built up until we are unified in faith which does not falter and holds firm to Christ. Then we have unity of knowledge. And an interesting point should be made, and that is that faith comes before understanding. Which is not to say that we simply believe without understanding. It's not this expectation that, well, you don't really need to understand anything or even who God is. Or No, no, there's some understanding. But we are not expected to be theologians to come to Christ. We're not expected to have it all figured out. We're not expected to have this vast 
library of, of systematic theologies or experiences or knowledge or questions about things. Rather, as the Spirit stirs our hearts, we respond and we come in faith. Only after this does that faith begin to grow depth as our knowledge and our wonder deepens. A.W. Tozer put it this way. God will not hold us responsible to understand the mysteries of election, predestination, and the divine sovereignty. The best and safest way to deal with these truths is to raise our eyes to God and in deepest reverence say, O Lord, Thou knowest. Those things belong to the deep and mysterious profound of God's omniscience. Prying into them may make theologians, but it will not, sorry, it will never make saints. Now, there's two problems that we face. Two that we run into first is that we often expect new believers to be mature Christians, which they're not. And the other is that we expect these new believers to get there on their own, which is contrary to God's command. Christ expressly told them, you are going out to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them all that I've commanded you. There is not an expectation that anyone will come to Christ on their own and become a mature believer on their own. It isn't there. No, if we, were, if we come to Christ, it's because God has been at work in our lives. If we come to maturity, it's because we've been part of a body where others are leading us and coming alongside us in growing together with us. There is not an expectation of individuality, of, of independence within the body of Christ. Instead, there is unity in maturity. Paul calls it mature manhood. But I want to be clear, he's not speaking only to men. He contrasts being full-grown men to our current position as children. And so the idea is not men, you listen up, and women, you, you don't listen at all. No, it's as people, as God's people. The reality is that we are children who need to grow up into adulthood. Now, if we think about our position as children, we are, whether we like to admit it or not, immature. Anyone disagree? Don't say anything. <laughs> we're not only immature, we're lacking a discernment, which is where if somebody did say something, that was going to be funnier there. We're also easily swayed and deceived. And Paul gives the standard, the level of maturity that we're to reach. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Which brings us into the third point, godly maturity. Now, first, it means unity. This is from Ephesians 1, earlier in the letter to Ephesians. And he put all things under his feet, that is, Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, here's the reality. We are not done growing as believers. Uh, I heard once from, from one man as, as we were talking about Sunday school and whether he would be interested in teaching. This is not this church, by the way. It's a previous church. I have a strict policy to not use illustrations of anyone that you might know. Because that gets real messy real fast. No, and he said, look, I taught Sunday school for a lot of years. I put in my time. I'm done. Don't ask me. And I thought, ooh, all right. I didn't, I didn't realize you put in enough time and, and suddenly you get to coast. I, I thought, maybe, maybe I should look forward to when I get to coast. Then I looked in Scripture. I, I didn't find it. No, in fact, there's a joke there. Uh, <laughs> pastor's pay isn't good, but the retirement, retirement package is out of this world. Yeah. You laugh. It's not a good joke. <laughs> no, in reality, we're not done growing. We lack unity as the body of Christ. Division is evidence of that immaturity. We still lack discernment, and we're easily swayed and deceived by doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, the picture that Paul uses is that of children. Tossed to and fro by waves. If anyone has ever taken children to the beach, 
if they get out a little too deep and a few waves happen, whether because a boat comes by or because of wind, and they're tossed all over. They go under the water. They're not doing well. And Paul says, that's you as believers, tossed to and fro by the waves. And then he uses another one, carried by the wind. It's like children pulled out in the current in water too deep for them, or babies who haven't yet gained the strength to walk with confidence. Which, by the way, I failed to mention this earlier, but if you're looking to put your child in the nursery, one of the requirements is that they're able to walk with confidence. Paul says, as believers, we're not there yet. We stumble, we fall, uh, we think we're doing really well and we start running and we fall and we get hurt and we cry. Now, we may not like to think of ourselves that way, but we can ask this practical question. Has our body, has our church grown in unity to a measure of maturity that we would call Christ-like? Or at the very least, can we say that we are growing in maturity? Now, the process is simple. Faith comes first. Each of us comes to a place where we sense our need for God and we surrender our lives to Christ and in Christ receive eternal life. Then, as we mentioned, comes knowledge. We're taught who God is, what God has done and what God desires of us. And we grow in our knowledge and faith as we grow deeper in our walk with Christ. Then comes maturity. We are confronted with our sin and selfishness, and God prunes away everything that is not of Him. Every selfish tendency, every worldly desire, every root of pride, envy, hatred, bitterness. In short, every single bit of sin which has worked its way into the deepest recesses of our souls. It is the work of sanctification, of being reshaped piece by piece into the image of Christ. And like children, there are lessons that we all need to learn. The first, now I'm a father of young children, so these things are fresh in my mind. One of the first things that we have to teach our kids and one of the lessons that we need to learn as children in the faith is that we don't know everything. That is not all. An easy lesson to learn. And believe me, I have children who think they know everything. They're not looking at me. They're not even paying attention. I see you. Yeah, yeah. No, we think we know everything. And there's a reason that God sent the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Because they are meant to help us grow in faith, in knowledge, and in maturity. Because the reality is we don't know everything. We can't be expected as young believers to have any knowledge at all. And so where are we supposed to get knowledge of who God is and what He's done and how we're to live? Well, according to Jesus' plan, from those He sends that is a part of God's grace, that is a blessing to His people, and it's what we need to grow. Another lesson that we need to learn is that we're not as grown up as we think. As kids, we, we want to believe we're grown up and we're ready for things that we're not, and it's painful when we're reminded that I'm not big enough for that, or I'm not strong enough for that, or I'm not mature enough for that, because we don't want to hear it. We want to hear, oh, you're so grown up. You're so mature. You're ready for this. And I didn't expect you to be ready. But the reality is often we're not. Regardless of how old we are or how long we've walked with the Lord, the work of growing doesn't end until we're called home. And even mature Christians can say and do childish things. In fact, it's some of the most mature Christians that it's the most heartbreaking when, when we get into squabbles and conflicts and we wonder, where is this coming from? Because none of us are done growing and none of us are as grown up as we think we are. And the third lesson that we need to learn is that at some point we need to grow up. Now, maybe you've got children at home who refuse to grow up. Or maybe you're an adult who refuses to grow up. What do they call that? Peter Pan syndrome? Which is the most offensive term they could come up with, right? Peter Pan syndrome. I don't want to be an adult. 
No, at some point we need to grow up to leave behind spiritual childhood and mature into the Christ that call, uh, into the call that Christ has given each of us. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling, in humility, in gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, what does this look like in the life of the believer? Well, we no longer divide over petty things, but we strive for unity in Christ. We no longer serve ourselves, but we aim to serve and reflect Christ well. And we love, not as the world loves, but as Christ loves. Now, I need to pause for a minute. Because Paul describes our situation as children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then he gets into verse 15. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, there's a phrase. And in fact, it's a phrase that I think we've misunderstood and misapplied in a lot of different ways ways. Now, I've heard people say, well, someone is doing something they shouldn't, and so I'm going to speak the truth in love. And I say, yes, it's true that we are called as believers to hold other believers accountable. In fact, we're, we're called in this case, in the context of the passage, to prevent others from being like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, being deceived and easily led astray, that we are to safeguard the church from those things. And so it's true. Speaking the truth in love is calling out deceit when we see it. It's calling out uh, patterns of behavior which are not acceptable as believers. It's true. We call out deceit and confusion in love. However, it is not a carte blanche, which, by the way, I looked that up because I thought, I don't speak French. Am I saying it right? And I thought, well, what does it mean? It is a blank check, blanket permission, we might say. And in this case, that's not what Paul's doing. He's not saying, look, you now have an excuse. You now have blanket permission to say whatever we want because we love people. And sometimes we call it tough love. Sometimes we say, look, I'm just speaking the truth in love. And we're not caring about how we say something or how the things that we say are received or whether people are going to hear what we're even saying. Now, the first thing we need to talk about is this is first and foremost among the body, not those who do not believe. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, for what do I do? What have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not is it not rather those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. That was Paul talking about a specific instance of sin within the Corinthian church. And the second part is that the desire is that those who are not yet mature and are in these uh, patterns of behavior would grow in maturity. And so how we speak the truth and whether we do it lovingly matters. Think of how we were spoken to as children. Did we respond well to harshness or anger? How did we handle discouragement or criticism? How did we respond to shame? How did we handle expectations that we didn't understand? Practically speaking, it is a call to build up the church, not to tear it down. And so again, to call others into the unity in faith, knowledge, and maturity. Not shying away from the truth in a way that damages the gospel. And not speaking the truth in a disparaging or hateful manner that damages the gospel. Truth and love are not opposing ideas. And there's a reason Paul mentions humility, gentleness, and patience. As he says, bearing with one another in love. Now, if we look at the structure of verses 15 and 16, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. It is we, the unified we, to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, growing is assumed. Now, that's the phrase that we used last week that Paul planted, Apollos watered. God gives the growth. And as God is causing growth in His church, we have these questions of, of what that should look like. And Paul says, as we are growing, we grow up in every way in Him who is the head of the church, that is, into Christ, from whom the whole body... Now, Paul is talking about the body, and he's using this illustration that Christ is the head, we are the body. He's the one that has control and leads us. We're the ones who play out those everyday functions in life. In fact, that's, that's a pretty good illustration. In fact, he says that we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. There's equipped again. So as the church is being equipped and it's serving in ministry, it is important because they are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. It is essential that the church be equipped. He says when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now the problem we saw in Corinth last week is that their focus shifted from Christ. He was no longer their head. And so it shifted from Christ to mere men and the roles they played in Christ's plan for his church. They were immature. They were not equipped. They were not ready to do the work of ministry. They still needed these men and they needed to understand who they were in proper context in order to grow. And the solution to the problem that we saw in Corinth is that we all grow up in every way into Christ. That is, we grow and mature. Our faith deepens as we trust more in Christ. Our knowledge deepens as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. That our maturity deepens as we mature in Christ-likeness and faithfulness to Christ. As we are united in Christ. As we are equipped for ministry together. And as we mature together as the unified body of Christ. Now, I quoted from A.W. Tozer earlier this morning, and I'd like to do it again, this time in regard to unity. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork? That's, That's a tuning fork, for those of you who are unfamiliar. Are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Now the point of the quote is simple. Our focus needs to be on Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no hope of unity. Unity among the body is the measure of maturity of those who are in Christ. And it is not for no reason that it features so heavily in the letters to the early churches. Here were new churches made up of new believers who were struggling with how to live together in a world that thrives on division. Our church may be a bit older. And we may have some believers that have walked with the Lord for far longer than they had in Corinth or Ephesus. But we are still struggling with the same question. How do we live together in this world and serve Christ well? First, we strive for unity. Division has been present in the church for as long as there have been people in the church. But if we are growing together in Christ, then our shared faith should unify us. Our knowledge of who God is and the wonders He's done for us should unify us. And the maturity that ought to be developing in us as we are equipped and served together should unify us. Secondly, do not neglect the grace God has given you in the two means by which He equips you for the work of ministry. His Spirit in you. And those who serve Him in equipping the body. Take advantage of the opportunity to deepen your faith 
and your knowledge of the Son of God, so you might learn to discern and hold fast to Christ in the midst of the winds of doctrine, human cunning, and craftiness in deceitful schemes. And third, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In maturity, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, we'll know when we're doing it properly. The body will grow so that it builds itself up in love. If division is a mark of immature in the, uh, immaturity in the body, then love is the mark of a mature and sincere faith. And so may we strive for a mature faith together that is marked and distinguished by Christ's love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. And we thank you again for your word. God, as we have come to it this morning, it's easy for us to see the problems in other churches, in the church in Corinth, in the church in Ephesus, and to say those churches are different from us. We're not like that. I'm not like that. And yet the reality is, even though thousands of years have gone by, the church still struggles with the same problems. We each struggle with unity. We each struggle to embrace those gifts to be equipped for the work of ministry. And we struggle to know what it means to, to grow in maturity. And so God, if we can learn anything from these churches from Corinth and Ephesus, God, could we learn from their mistake? And instead of doing what they did, God, would you keep our eyes on you? Would you keep our focus on you? If we're to be unified, it's because we have unity in you. If we're to be equipped, it's because you have sent those gifts for us. If we're to grow in maturity, it's because your spirit is at work in us. God, may we be known for our unity and our love, both of which point solely to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someday, we don't know how far in the future, might be tomorrow, might be next week, might be years from now, there is going to be a time, though, that unity isn't going to be such a struggle. You know, we're going to be unified not with just... The church in Embarrassed or the churches of the United States or the churches of whatever. It'll be all of the nations, all of the churches, all of the people who love Jesus. And we're just going to all be able to be one great, big, unified body praising Him. It's part of our hope. And though we do need to work on unity and keep it at the forefront now, it's kind of nice to think about a day when it isn't going to be quite so hard. 